Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everybody. Great, great to see you. Thank you, Kayla, for uh, getting this started, this discussion started for us. As she mentioned, we are uh, going to be in our last, in our last, last, last uh, sermon, last message on our sermon series called Crucial Questions. I hope you guys have enjoyed this series as much as I have. Yeah, there's the right idea. Daniel was here first service. He knows that I gave the pause for applause first service, and the same thing happened first service. So, Feeling great about this series and the fact that we did it right now. But at the same time, I do hope that it's been an encouragement to you. I hope that you've had an opportunity to learn some things through this. I hope that this has been an equipping uh, series for you. Because as we talked about from the beginning, this is not just about answering trivia questions about the Bible. This is about what does it mean for us to be more fully equipped to follow Jesus. And hopefully that has been something that you have seen and experienced through this series at one point or another. After all, we took the questions that you guys submitted to us and we have used that to kind of walk through uh, this series together. And so as we're back here this morning, we are in uh, we're picking really a good Sunday to come back and regather because it's the last Sunday in this series and we're also really addressing kind of a doozy of a question. We're going to be tackling this question, what is the relationship between the Bible and science? Now, you, if you, you may know, if you've ever done any kind of work in this, any kind of research on this, you know this is a huge question. In fact, it's a question that's so big, it's going to be difficult for us to fully answer it today. Uh, just to give you an idea, I saved this question for the end on purpose because I knew I was going to get a couple of weeks uh, in front of this with Adam and Wes preaching the past couple of weeks to spend more time in research. And I needed every bit of those three weeks to just get something together that I could put on paper that I think is somewhat intelligible and that's going to maybe make sense at the end. You may disagree when we get to the end about it making sense, but at the same time, this is going to be an exploration on what does it mean for the Bible and science to have some kind of connection here. And I use that word relationship on purpose because I think far too many times science and the Bible have been pitted against each other almost as foes and enemies. And I don't really believe that that's the way that it was designed to be. In fact, I believe that when we do science well and we do Bible interpretation well, those two things actually come together as a partnership rather than as foes or enemies that resist each other. And so uh, one thing that I guess I would say to you this morning is if you are interested in science, if you are a scientist, and you're kind of struggling in this place where I don't know where how science kind of meshes with the Bible, I want you to be encouraged that there, it's a false dichotomy to say that science is in competition or in opposition to the Bible. We're going to talk about that here this morning. So all of these questions, really, that have been asked throughout this series have really been focused on larger questions. We've approached this throughout a Crucial Questions series where we've taken these smaller questions like, do, did dinosaurs exist? What about dinosaurs? What's the age of the earth? You know, is it, is it older? Is it younger? What are the human origins and all those kinds of things? Evolution, creation, those are all the questions that have been asked. Now, all of these things come back to this bigger picture of what is the, what is the relationship between the Bible and science? Andrew Parker, who is an agnostic scientist and also the book, uh, author of the book, I sh- should say, uh, The Genesis Enigma, tries to actually explain how he sees the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 1 explaining or connecting with science. And he's an agnostic, which means that he does not have faith. He basically uh, is not a believer in, 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 in the Bible, not a believer in God necessarily. But when he read the book of Genesis, he came to this conclusion as a scientist. And he says this, and, it, and it's such an important conclusion that he actually wrote an entire book called the Genesis Enigma. He said, here then is the Genesis Enigma. The opening page of Genesis is scientifically accurate, but was written long before the science was even known to us. How did the writer of this page come to write this creation account? I must admit rather nervously as a scientist averse to entertaining such an idea that the evidence that the writer of the opening page of the Bible was divinely inspired is strong. I have never before encountered such a powerful, impartial evidence that the Bible is the product of divine inspiration. Now, I share that that quote with you for a couple of reasons, because you can see inherent in Andrew Parker's worldview is this kind of dichotomy between science and the Bible, right? He almost feels like, as a scientist, I'm not really supposed to admit that the Bible could possibly be true. And he's probably been brought up in an environment which is an academic environment that basically says if you believe in science or you're a scientist, you can't also believe in the Bible, because the Bible doesn't have anything to say about science. But as he found, as he began reading through the book of Genesis, he realized whoever wrote this 
actually lines up with a lot of things that we have found out in modern science, and yet how could that be possible if they wrote it so long ago? And he came to the conclusion in this that it must be divinely inspired, even for an agnostic. That's an amazing, amazing thing. I think the other thing in this is that it shows the connection between science and, and the Bible. He even says, he even says like, through reading the Bible, it has actually allowed me to understand, based on my scientific discovery, that there may be this intelligent designer, this creator of all things who may be God. And maybe Genesis is onto something. Now, here's just one of the disclaimers that I'm going to say this morning. I am going to talk about uh, science and the Bible, and it is my view from the beginning that science and the Bible should be partners together. I believe that there's a partnership that goes on there. If science is about discovering God's creation, it's a part of God's revelation of who he is to us. Just like God's word tells us who he is, then the the, the world that he has created, as we open up Genesis, God reveals himself as a creator. And as we get into the creation, we actually see how God, uh, we actually see aspects of who God is by the world that he has created us to live in. And we see that in places like Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now consider what this is actually saying. It's saying that by the creation, the heavens declare actually the glory of God. And that last part there, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge, that as we live in this world and discover more about this creation, that there is revelatory knowledge that is going on. That knowledge that's being talked about here in in Psalm 19 is the knowledge of God as we look at the world that he has created. And then Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 also says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him, or shown it to them, or shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. And how is that? Since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. The writer of of Romans there, Paul, is actually saying that there is something that as we look at the creation, we should deduce that there is a creator who has actually put this here in front of us. Now, here's a big disclaimer on my part. I am not a scientist. I don't know if you guys knew that, but I am not a scientist. And I'll tell you ahead of time, and, and if you're taking notes, underline that, boldface that, Jay is not a scientist. That's a big disclaimer for you, because if you are a scientist, or you're interested in science, and I pr- mispronounce words, or I totally butcher it, that's just part of it. But at the same time, I would say this. I have realized my need to understand a little bit more science, even as a pastor, and trying to understand scripture, which is a big leap for me. Because growing up, I did everything I could to avoid anything that looked like science. And when I tell you that, I, I, I really mean it. And when I was a senior in high school, in fact, I had a physics class that I had to take as part of my graduation requirements. After sitting in that physics class for like two or three days, I quickly figured out I need to get out of this class as soon as possible. And I found a loophole in the graduation requirements at my high school that allowed me to take an elective instead of that physics class. So by the next week, I was in a humanities class instead of physics, which was really an awesome thing because in humanities, I got to study like Greek philosophy and ancient religions and art and that kind of stuff just right up my alley. And we actually got to like each class period, we got to sit there and read Greek philosophy for like 10 minutes while we listened to the Braveheart soundtrack just kind of in silence altogether. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful thing for me, exactly the opposite of what a physics class would have been. But although I didn't regret it at the time, as I've gone back and kind of done some research and studied this, I've really realized how much I regret dropping that physics class. So kids, stay in school and don't drop your physics class, I guess is the lesson of that. But I would say that in all of this, that there is an important aspect to understanding science. And I'm going to try to work through this as, as, as much as we can. And we're going to address really four different main perspectives as it relates to simply the creation account. So questions like, how old is the earth? Where did we come from? What are our origins of the universe? And yes, the question about dinosaurs itself. But as we get into that, before we do, I want to establish what are the essentials from the biblical account. So in biblical creation, what are the things that we see that are basically the non-negotiables about what Scripture says to us about this creation account in Genesis? First of all, we realize that the Bible is God's authoritative word. So what the Bible has to say, in essence, is what our truth is as Christians who believe in Scripture. So in other words, where science and the Bible are at odds, we trust in the Bible and we believe the Bible. Now where would that happen? Well, that would happen in a lot of places in the miracle accounts throughout Scripture. Science would tell us that 
A woman who is a virgin cannot get pregnant and give birth to a human being. And yet, we realize in Scripture that we're told that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Science would tell us that people don't come back from the dead. And yet, when we look in Scripture, we see that the Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the dead. So there are places where science will disagree with Scripture, and in those cases, we have to choose Scripture as the authoritative Word of God. Secondly, God is the sovereign and eternal creator. What we are saying there is that God is the I am. He is the eternal one. God was not created by anyone or anything else. He has always existed, and he is the one who does all of the creating. And that God also created out of nothing. Uh, The term for that is God creating ex nihilo. He creates everything that we see out of nothing. He doesn't take eternal matter in some ways that predates him and form it together to create. He creates all matter, and everything that we see, he has created out of nothing. Creation was also God's idea and God's activity. God decided to create, and he was the one who undertook it, and he was the one who completed it. God created human beings in his image, and Adam and Eve, who were the human beings created in his image, were actual historical people and the first image bearers in creation. And then finally, there was original sin and the corresponding fall of creation. We see that in Genesis 3. Okay. So with that in line, those are the essentials. Those are the things that we should all believe scripturally that are pretty clear in the creation account. So in what ways do these things, uh, uh, in what ways are these things different depending on our perspective? Well, the division that's typically happened has been phrased creation versus evolution. You've probably seen this. I think it's an unfortunate designation because in reality, evolution itself Uh, There are some beliefs, we're going to talk about one of those beliefs and one of those positions called theistic evolution today that actually makes an allowance for God as creator. So I think that's an unfortunate way to phrase it. In fact, what we're really looking at is the distinction between intelligent design and what is known as naturalism. Now, intelligent design is pretty straightforward. Intelligent design just means that we believe that someone or something created the universe that we live in. And we're going to cover the evidence here in just a couple of minutes, but there's a ton of evidence that the world that we live in, how it's been fine-tuned and how it's been put together, uh, tells us that there is an intelligent designer behind everything that we see and behind everything that has been created. Now, people who believe in intelligent design aren't necessarily believers in the God of the Bible. They're not necessarily Christians, but most often they believe in someone or something that caused these things to be together. Now, people of faith are probably all intelligent design people. Now, in opposition to intelligent design is the other side of this debate, which is known as naturalism. And that's where we're going to start with our first perspective this morning, a perspective that is known as naturalistic evolution theory. Now, this is probably what is in most people's mind when you think of evolution, what is really naturalistic evolution theory, because naturalism comes from the view and the, and the assumption that everything in the world that we see is the only thing that is actually true. In other words, the material things that we see in this world are the things that are the, are the only things that exist. So there's no allowance in naturalism for spirituality, no allowance for God himself. In fact, naturalism makes a statement and a claim about God that God does not exist and that everything came together as a result of eternal um, material and eternal matter that has come together randomly over years and billions of years of evolution. Okay, so naturalism, naturalism claims that there is randomness to this universe and that everything that we see has just formed from these random aspects of matter that have been around for eternity. Now, naturalism is not the same as science. It's not even the same as Darwinism. Believe it or not, Darwin actually believed in a God and, and associated some of his beliefs with a creator. So there aren't a lot of, and I'm going to talk about the pros and cons of each of these perspectives. There's not a lot of pros when it comes to naturalism and how it relates to the Bible because naturalism would dismiss the Bible out of hand. So let's talk about the cons here. Well, polls that have been done about what Americans believe about an intelligent creator and intelligent designer have consistently showed that about 80% of Americans believe in an intelligent designer of some sort. About 10% are undecided, and about 10% actually believe in naturalism, denying, uh, denying that there could be an intelligent designer. And the reason for that is a little bit surprising. It's not because people believe in the Bible necessarily in every case. It's because the science, the modern science that we have seen develop, actually points us more in a direction of an intelligent designer than it does towards randomness in creation or randomness in our universe. A good starting point to talk about this, and there's a lot of places you can actually find this. You guys have Google, you can look it up, but I'm just going to point out a few things. 
First of all, as we look at, as we look at physics, and yes, I'm going to talk about physics, so be careful here, or I'll be careful here as much as I can. But from physics, what we can see, we can see all kinds of different things that physicists tell us about how particularly and finely tuned the universe is. And I don't know if you realize this, if you've done a lot of study in this at all, but it's literally a miracle that we have life thriving on this planet. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. As we look at physics, physicists tell us that there are three forces inherent in the universe, that if any of these three forces were any stronger or any weaker, life would fail to exist the way that it does. The first one is gravity. Physicists tell us that if gravity in our universe were slightly stronger than it is right now, all the stars in our universe would be larger and they would be too large to actually allow for the development of life because they would burn out too quickly. Now, if gravity was a little bit slightly weaker, the stars would not be big enough to produce the heavier elements that are needed to even form planets. So planets would not even come together if gravity was just slightly weaker than what it is currently as it exists in our universe. Secondly, the second force is the nuclear force, which controls the decay of neutrons. And if the nuclear force was just a little bit weaker, uh, or a little bit stronger, I should say, it would decay too rapidly, and as a result, there would be nothing in the universe but hydrogen. And if it was a little bit weaker, all hydrogen would be turned into helium. Now, you may know this about our atmosphere. We need oxygen in order to sustain life. So if it was all hydrogen, life would not exist. And if hydrogen was missing from the atmosphere, life would not exist either. And so the third basic force is electromagnetic force, which binds actually atoms together at the, at the molecular level. And if the electromagnetic force was any stronger or any weaker, chemical bonds actually couldn't come together and life would not exist anywhere in the universe. Now, that's just three forces that physicists can identify. There are actually 25 other factors that scientists have identified that if they weren't pinpointed to the exact degree as they exist in our universe right now, then life would not exist at all anywhere in the universe. Now, if you take that and then you say, okay, what's the likelihood actually of life existing on the planet Earth? There are another 45 parameters that have to be finely tuned to a certain degree as they are right now in order for life to exist on planet Earth. For example, one of those would be that if the galaxy was a little bit bigger or if the moon was a little bit further away or had a higher mass, then the Earth would be thrown off of its orbit and, climate would, and the climate of this Earth would be inhospitable for life. I mean, the smallest things. And so as we get more into this, we realize that everything that we look at, no matter what discipline and science you look at, it's pinpoint accuracy as far as allowing life to exist on this earth. It's literally a miracle. To give you an idea, if you combine all of these sets of factors together, the probability number that our universe just exists by random chance is very, very small. In fact, it's an incomprehensibly small number. It is one in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. That may not sound like a huge number, or maybe it does, but it's a ridiculous number. If you, were to able, if you were able to actually write that number out in one line, it would literally stretch beyond the bounds of the universe. That's how big that number is. One chance in all of that, that actually scientists are realizing that our world came together by random chance. Now, from physics and chemistry, you also have to consider biology. You may know this, Darwin taught that all of life evolved from a one-celled organism. A human being has about a trillion cells in us. Each of us have about a trillion cells. So a one-celled organism to a trillion-celled human being. Even with the universe being 15 billion years old, as evolutionary theory claims, it is much too young, actually, for the time that is needed for a one-celled organism to evolve into a, into a trillion-celled human being. Give you an idea, Alistair McGrath says this. He says, For Darwin's theory to have a chance of being right, the universe would have to be a trillion, quadrillion, 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 quadrillion times older than it is. I think I said all of those quadrillions right. Give or take a quadrillion, right? Either way, it's a big, it's a big number. It's an astronomical number that we can't even imagine. It's incomprehensible. And so that issue right there, along with also the fossil record. If you get into geology and paleontology, what we begin to realize is that the fossils don't show us that gradual evolution happened over time. In fact, we see eras where there is a small amount of time where plants and animals just explode onto the scene. New plants and animals that are discovered around the same time. 
And so when scientists look at this, they establish what was known as the Cambrian era. And within the Cambrian era, there was this well-known event called the Cambrian explosion that according to scientists happened 400 or 540 million years ago. And during that time, we saw this proliferation, an explosion of new plants and new animals just come to the stage all at once. Which leads us to the place of understanding that gradual evolution by chance is hugely unlikely if we're looking at any of those areas of science. And it goes on and on and on. Okay, So that's naturalistic evolution. The next part of this, the next perspective we're going to look at is called theistic evolution. Now, I said this a little bit earlier, but there is a position or is a perspective about the origins of the earth that accounts for both evolution and the existence of a creator God, and this is theistic evolution. The word theistic represents God. The word theos is God itself, and then you combine that with evolution, and basically what this position says is that God created the earth, but that he used the process of evolution over 14 billion years to bring us to where we are now. I right? should so say God created the universe and then used the process of evolution to bring us where we are now on the earth. And so God creates essentially this universe that is able to produce with the, with the parameters in place to produce life, to produce planets, uh, stars, human beings, all that we see that exists now, and that he does it through an evolutionary process. Now, some Christians believe, in fact, a lot of Christians believe in theistic evolution, but not all theistic evolution uh, people are Christians. But here are the main points of theistic evolution. Number one, God causes the universe to come into being. Number two, God sets the laws of physics and fine-tunes the initial conditions. So as God establishes originally the universe, he fine-tunes all of those things that we were talking about before that needed to be conditioned for, the li for, for life and for planets and for all the rest to develop. Number three, God sustains the universe in being. So God doesn't just kind of put the world in motion and step away, but he is still involved and actively involved. In fact, as some would say from this position, the Cambrian explosion is an example of God interjecting creation of plants and animals right into that time in, in, in the history of the universe. Number four, the universe develops and life subsequently emerges without any more special discrete supernatural input from God until God creates human beings. So there's a particular, when we look in, in Genesis chapter one, we see day six there when God creates human beings about 6,000 years ago from where we are now. There is a place where God steps into history and again supernaturally creates something new, which is a human being created in his image. But, at number five, at that particular moment, which I think some theistic evolutionists believe in this, some may not. But God specifically confers his image on a hominid that had already emerged from the gradual evolutionary process. So in other words, you may know, you may have heard of uh, you know, Cro-Magnon Man. That is one of the hominids, so it's a, a human-like creature, but at the same time, it's not fully human, and then God gives his image to one of those creatures, and that becomes Adam and Eve of the Bible in Genesis. And, and for some from this position, they actually believe that God did this for an entire community or a group or a city of people at the time, okay? So there are a lot of Christians that actually believe, that actually do believe, and especially a lot of Christian scientists who do believe in theistic evolution. I think one thing we need to hold in, 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 in one hand here is realizing that all of the essentials that we talked about earlier of creation that come from the Bible, Christian theistic evolutionists hold to those essentials. So one of, those, one of those in particular is a man by the name of Francis Collins. He's probably the most famous, most well-known theistic evolutionist that's a Christian. Uh, he heads up and started the Human Genome Project, and he actually comes to his conclusions based on his study of DNA. And he says this in his book, it's a best-selling book called The Language of God that he wrote several years ago. He says, this is, how, this is his perspective on theistic evolution. I think it explains it well. God, who is not limited in space and time, created the universe and established natural laws that govern it. Seeking to populate this otherwise sterile universe with living creatures, God chose the elegant mechanism of evolution to create microbes, plants, and animals of all sorts. Most remarkably, God intentionally chose the same mechanism to give rise to special creatures who would have intelligence, a knowledge of right and wrong, free will, and a desire to appreciate him. And of course, those special creatures are us, right? Are, are the ones who are given the image of God so that we can tell right from wrong. We have a moral compass. We have a free will. We actually can communicate with the creator who created us. We can understand his will, those kinds of things. Okay, 
So that's that position stated. What are the pros of this position, theistic evolution? Well, I think one of the pros of this and one of the ways you can look at it is that when we read the book of Genesis, we're not told exactly how old the earth is. In fact, in the very first statement, when we're told in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there is a process there where the heavens and the earth remain actually formless and void. Now, we don't know how long that period of time is. It could have been momentary. It could have been from one day to the next. Or it is possible, we have to make this allowance, that it could have been over a longer period of time, like billions of years into which it comes into form through an evolutionary process that God oversaw. And then at 3.5 billion years ago, God creates the earth and he forms it together and then he begins to create life on this earth or to allow life to come out of the earth, the, the uh, theistic evolutionist would say. So in the end result, again, the Christian theistic evolution position has all of the essentials in place, but at the same time, I think the question that we need to ask in the end, and this kind of leads us a little bit to the cons of all of this, is, is it the most natural reading of Scripture? And I would say personally that I don't believe that it is. I think when we read Scripture, what we see is that God is much more intimately involved with creating what he creates. Um, the Christian theistic evolution paints God more as like a computer programmer who creates a computer and maybe creates the software and then allows it to run and produce. I think when we look at Scripture, God is, pre God is presented to us as a creator who is more like an artist or a craftsman. He is involved with what he is doing and he creates it. When we look at Psalm 19, I think that we just read earlier, it talks about the handiwork of God. The creation is the handiwork of God. And I think, as I think about that, I think about an artist or a craftsman more than a computer programmer. And so as I think about this as well, I also, I think one of the biggest problems with this view in particular is that God somehow took Cro-Magnon humanoids and put, or, or, or hominids, I should say humanoids, like a, I don't know what that is, an alien or something, but a, a hominid and put his image on already existing Cro-Magnon man. A uh, few, few issues with this. When you look at scripture, when you see God approaching, God approaches people a lot in scripture, and you see that when God approaches people, there is uh, God, uh, scripture explaining God approaching, and we don't see that happening in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In fact, what we see in Genesis 2 is God creating something new from the dust. Genesis 2, chapter 7, God creates Adam from the dust. And then in 21, 22, we get uh, the account of Eve being created, and she's taken from the rib of Adam. Now, there are some people, and especially of this pers uh, perspective, who would say, you know, the, that creation narrative, it's poetic, and it's meant to be figurative and those kinds of things. It certainly is probably poetic, but that doesn't mean that it can't report history to us. And I think when we read in 21 and 22, the detail that this account goes into to telling us how the woman was created, that Adam was put to sleep, that his rib was taken, and then his flesh was closed up afterwards, what we're being told here, given detail and telling us that this is an actual historical event that happened. And so I think the testimony of Scripture leads us away from a belief in theistic, at least from my opinion, theistic evolutionary uh, theory. That doesn't mean that anybody who believes that's not a Christian or they don't believe in God or they don't believe in Scripture. In fact, people from this persuasion actually, and from, from this uh, perspective, actually really work hard to join Scripture and science together. Okay, so from there we move on to what is known as creationism. Now, creationism, it's, this is kind of uh, another one of those terms that's a little bit limiting because creationism used to refer to anybody who believed in an intelligent designer or, or a God who created. And if that's the case, we could actually include theistic evolution under the heading of creationism. But that's not how it's currently talked about, and so I'm going to just talk about it from this standpoint. There are two main camps when it comes to creationism. The young earth camp, the young earth creationists, and the old earth creationists. Now, both of them agree that God creates directly, again, like an artist or like a craftsman. But, as you can tell from the names of these, of these perspectives, they disagree on the age of the earth in particular. Young earth creationists believe that God created literally in six days over a one-week period. And if we trace that back by tracing Adam and how, and how long ago Adam lived, we can say that that was about 6,000 years ago. So the young earth perspective takes a very literal view on the description of Genesis chapter 1 and says that about 6,000 years ago, everything that we know was created. So all of the planets, all of the stars, the universe, and yes, even dinosaurs were created 6,000 years ago with Adam within the same one week, one week of 24-hour day period. Okay? 
And so some of the pros of this, of course, well, that, and that, by the way, is in opposition to what the old earth and the uh, evolutionary theorists would say. They actually claim that the world would be, or the universe is 15 billion years old, and that the earth is about 3.5 to 4 billion years old, okay? So we can see the discrepancy there. It's a pretty wide discrepancy. But the pros to this are actually that in this perspective, there's a, there's a lot that goes into this perspective, but in this perspective, the young earth creationist really takes Scripture seriously. Not to say that the other positions don't, but the ones, they approach this from a very literal standpoint, a literal interpretation of the biblical text from Genesis chapter 1. That when you see days, they're 24-hour days, they seem to happen together in a week-long period, and they would back it up with something like Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 11. This is from the Ten Commandments where God establishes the Sabbath. And he says this there, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is within them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so those are the pros, right? Really trying to, trying to get the scripture part right. Not that others don't, but they really focus on this. Now the cons to this is that this is a perspective out of all of them that probably most scientists and most modern day scientists might have an issue with. This is where we see the most discrepancy between modern day scientific discovery and what we would actually interpret the Bible to be saying in Genesis chapter 1. Um, in fact, in many cases, young earth creationists, although they've really worked hard to kind of fill that gap and do their own science, in the end, what they end up doing is undermining almost every aspect of modern science. And so modern scientists are kind of caught, if, if you're a scientist and you're thinking, okay, do I trust in science or do I trust in the Bible? This is kind of one of those things that puts those two aspects at odds. Um, and, and in some ways, an example of young earth science is that young earth young earth um, position people believe and they will claim that Noah's flood actually aged the earth quite a bit so that when geologists and paleontologists dig up fossils like Kayla was doing earlier and they associate certain sedimentary levels with certain aspects and ages of the earth that those ages are actually incorrect because the flood of Noah actually caused the earth to age exponentially so that the earth is actually a lot younger than it appears from the fossil record. Now, I won't go into that, but there's really not a whole lot of evidence that most people in the scientific community would say fits that, fits that claim. They would also say at the same time that dinosaurs lived 6,000 years ago with human beings on the earth together, whereas the other positions, old earth positions, evolutionary theory, would say dinosaurs lived 225 million years ago, way before human beings came onto the scene 6,000 years ago. Okay. So that's some of the science, and you can get into that. I don't need to go through all of it. But I will say this. I think there is also an issue with a little bit of the literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. And I think we have to consider this in particular. That we, and we talked about this the first couple weeks in, in our Crucial Question series. We said that when we're talking about understanding the Bible literally, what we're trying to get at is the literal meaning of the Bible. That doesn't mean that we take every place and every piece of Scripture Literally. In fact, if we do that, we might miss the literal meaning of the Bible. An example of that would be the Psalms tell us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That doesn't necessarily mean that God just owns the cows on 1,000 hills on the earth, right? Obviously, we understand that what this is saying is that God owns all the cattle. And not only that God owns all the cattle, but that he owns all of creation. That's what that is saying in the end. And so when we look at a passage like Genesis 1, and it's fraught with all of these difficult things to understand and interpret, we have to be aware that the young earth perspective, although that claims to be literal, is not the only way to understand and interpret this chapter. In fact, as John Lennox says, although scripture could be understood as teaching that the earth is young, it does not have to be interpreted in that way. So how else can it be interpreted? Well, that brings us to the final perspective, which is known as the old earth creationist perspective. Now, again, like young earth people, old earth people believe that God creates us directly and brought the universe into being by his creative hand. It wasn't, although some old earth people believe in microevolution, that within species, like certain plants and animals can change, like flowers can change their color, or certain plants can adapt to their environments, or wolves 
wild wolves can become domesticated dogs over time. Like those things can happen. Those are microevolutionary procedures. They're not macro where animals and plants literally change form and change body types. Um, at the same time, they believe, though, that God creates directly by his hand. Now, this perspective tries really hard to blend modern scientific discovery, especially on the age of the earth, with what the Bible has to say. But it's not just about blending science with the creation story. It also takes scripture very seriously in other places. There are places where we look at and it points us to kind of how we understand the creation of the earth. I think for, for some of us to say that the earth is 15 billion years old, or, or the universe is 15 billion years old, and the earth is 4 billion years old, is like, it blows our minds to think through that. But as we look at scripture, there are places like Psalm 90 verse 4 that says this, for a thousand years in your sight, Lord, are but as yesterday when it passed, or as a watch in the night. Second Peter 3.8 says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a, of a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So the biggest disagreement, again, between young earth and old earth people is how old really is this universe? And when Genesis chapter 1 talks about days, what is it talking about? Is it talking about 24-hour days that happened over a one-week period, or does it mean possibly something else? Well, old earth people would say this. There's a few different ways of explaining what days mean in that context. For one, they would say days in question, don't, the days in question don't refer to literal 24-hour days, but instead refer to epochs of time. And they would point to a phrase like the day of the Lord. When we hear the day of the Lord repeated throughout Scripture, it's not talking about a 24-hour day. It's talking about a reign, an epoch, a longer period of time. Another perspective on this is that the days in question were days of revelation that were shown to Moses. We know that Moses is credited with writing the book of Genesis, and so some will say as Moses is writing this down, he's writing down days of revelation from his perspective. In other words, on day one, God told me this. On day two, God told me this. On day three, and so on and so forth. That the days, here's another perspective is this. The days in question refer to days of creation that were literal 24-hour days, but those days weren't back-to-back -back in one week. In fact, those days are spread out through a longer history of the universe, through billions of years. So day one happens, and then a billion years or billions of years pass, and then day two happens, and then years pass, and then day three, and so on and so forth. And then the last kind of major way of understanding this, the, what days refer to in this from an old earth perspective, is that the days in question were 24-hour days, but from one perspective, they were 24-hour days, and from another perspective, they were actually millions or billions of years, and it's all related to the relativity of time, which is kind of a scientific idea that we'll talk about here in a minute. But, so those are the explanations of this. Now, as you can see, the cons to this position are really this, is that the old earth perspective, if you say that those days are not 24-hour literal days in a week, you've got to be able to explain what those days actually refer to. And you can see a different perspectives that are not in agreement on this. And the danger of believing in this or having this perspective is that if you don't do it correctly, you do both bad science and bad biblical interpretation, which is what the old earth position is trying to actually reconcile. But that doesn't mean necessarily that this perspective is wrong. It just means there's a lot of tension and balancing there, okay? So those are the four perspectives, really the three perspectives that we want to consider that relate to a creator God. As I've been doing, you know, as we wind this thing down, we've got a few minutes left. And so to finish this out, as I've been doing every week, I put myself out there and tell you which one I actually believe in and the reasons why. And so I'm going to do that as we close here this morning. But before we do that, I want to show you again this list of essentials just to remind us, again, why we're on the same page and how we're on the same page. So if we have those list of essentials, these are all things that we can look at from Scripture and the creation account and agree upon. I agree with those, and I think anybody who has an honest reading of Scripture, it's pretty clear that those things are in place. Within that and after that, there's all kinds of different ways that we might be able to understand these things. So with that being said, trying to cover my bases there, cover myself, I align mostly with the old earth creationist perspective. I believe that this perspective shows us both the validity of science and how science and the Bible actually partner together to show us what God has done in creation. And so the question that I have to answer then is, what do I believe those days to be referring to in Genesis chapter 1? Well, I think it actually relates to, going all the way back, has its basis of understanding in the most famous scientist and his most famous theory, the most famous equation that we probably, that probably all of us know. Albert Einstein's theory of relativity 
E equals mc squared, as some of us might know it. And what we know is that basically, this is the belief that six days on, that six days actually did take 14 billion years on the earth to happen. And here's how this happens. In, 1960s, in the 1960s, astrophysicists identified the fact that the universe is growing. The universe is constantly growing. It's grown out from one space and has continued growing over years and years and years, and it's continuing to expand. We now know that there's an estimated 2 trillion galaxies in the universe, but that the universe is actually not done growing. We can identify cosmic radiation in the universe to kind of point us in that direction. And that cosmic radiation was actually left over from what scientists call the Big Bang, we might call in the beginning when God first created. I'm not actually opposed to Big Bang. Big Bang actually proved that there was an intelligent creator in a lot of ways, okay? But whether it's Big Bang or we would call it in the beginning, whatever that may be, that dispersed so much cosmic radiation that caused the earth or the, or the universe, I should say, to continue to grow. And it's been growing ever since that point. And at this point, after 14 billion years, we can identify that the universe was about a million, million times smaller than it is now when it was first created and put into motion. What does that mean? That means that relative to time, time was actually a million, million times faster during that time, and it moved faster on the earth or in our universe than it does right now today. So what does that look like? Well, it's a really big, I know, <laughs> and for a Sunday morning, this is like, what the heck are you talking about? I get it. Uh, it took me a while to understand it as well, but here's the thing, is that a physicist by the name of Sarah Salviander, she's not the one who discovered this. This is actually a lot of, a lot of scientists have actually caught on to this, but she is one who explains it well, I think, from a Christian perspective, and so I brought a few of her slides that'll help us kind of understand this a little better. The first one is this, and this has to do with the relativity of time. That time is actually not an absolute. That's what Einstein helped us see through his theory of relativity. So that it's dependent upon a bunch of things like matter and in particular gravity and mass. So if you were on the earth, your time actually ticks slower because of the gravitational pull than it would if you were outside of the orbit of the earth, let's say floating on that satellite out there. Time actually moves faster if you're just outside of the orbit of the earth or orbiting outside of the earth compared to actually being on the earth. We've actually been able to measure that. And it has to do with, with time being relative. Secondly, the universe has expanded by a factor of about one trillion over its history since what is known as quark confinement, which is basically, you know, more or less Big Bang time, whatever it may be. And so as a result, 14 billion years divided by one trillion actually is approximately equal to six days, which is the six days, which this position understands to be the six days of creation. And finally, the Genesis account is then told from the perspective of God and not from the perspective of, of the earth. So in other words, when God says one day happens and then, sun, and then the, the sun sets and night happens and those kinds of things, what is actually being talked about is what is known as cosmic time, which is, which is the cosmic time that was put into the universe by God, measured by light years instead of by clocks on our wrists or whatever it may be. And to give you a breakdown of what this looks like then, each one of those days took approximately those amount of earth years to be completed. So from God's perspective, it was 24 hours. On the earth, because of the size of the universe, it was 7 billion, it was 3 billion, 1 billion, until we get to a place 6,000 years ago on day 6 when Adam was created where the 24-hour day appears for the first time. Okay, now, that's a lot, I know, and in some cases your head may be spinning thinking, could that really be possible? I'll tell you that in a lot of ways, I think one of the things that really attracts me to that is because there seems to be some solid science behind it. I would also say this, that it lines up with, what God, with who God is as revealed to us by Scripture, that if we're looking at an infinite universe that God has created that continues to go on, it represents to us an infinite God. I'm thinking of a finite universe. It doesn't necessarily as well, in my mind at least, represent the infinite God whom we, whom we worship. And so I think this infinite God, the universe that keeps going and expanding infinitely really reflects the character of God. Isaiah 40, verse 22 says this, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Now, no matter how we interpret that verse, I think what it reminds us of is the grandeur of what God does in creation. And no matter where we line up, I think as long as we are on the essentials in this, 
um, it causes us and helps us to understand a couple of things. First of all, that there are certain things that God has communicated to us about creation that are essential, and there's other things that we don't know for sure. And so it reminds us of both the imminence and the personal nature of God when he gives us the essentials and tells us clearly, this is what this is supposed to be and supposed to look like. You're created in my image, for example. I created out of nothing those things. It tells us about a personal God who reveals himself in a very direct way. At the same time, God is also transcendent. He is other than us. And as scripture says, his ways are above our ways. And so there's a certain amount of mystery in this. There's a certain amount of, of, of where we chase after this and we try to understand it, but in the end, we may never fully grasp exactly the way and the timing of how God did all of this. How old is the earth? Well, we're not exactly sure 100%. But as we continue to pursue and try to discover what God has put in front of us, we have an opportunity to understand more about the God who has created us, the infinite being who has loved us in this way. Now, here's one thing I think that's important on that note. As we finish this series together, we've talked about, we're finishing kind of in the same way that we began. Remember when we began this series, we talked about essentials and non-essentials. That essentials are the things that we hold uh, together, and non-essentials are the things that we are free to disagree about. And throughout this series, there have probably been a lot of things that fall under the heading of non-essentials that you may have disagreed with us about. Whether it's me or Wes or Adam up here, I can tell you this, I know that's the case, because some of you have told me that's the case, but I'm also guessing at the same time that, that that's the case because Wes and Adam and I have disagreed about those non-essentials as well. I'm sure there have been things where they've been sitting there and say, I don't agree with that. And I know for a fact there are things that I've been sitting there and saying, I, I definitely don't agree with that. Right, Wes? Okay, yeah. Um, but in the end, here's the thing. We are still brothers who are following Jesus, who have a high view of Scripture. We view Scripture as our authority, and we're trying to figure this out together. We're still on church staff together, and as the lead of the preaching team, I'm not telling Wes and Adam that they can't preach anymore because they don't agree with my view on the end times or they don't agree with my view on predestination or those kinds of things. These are things that we can hold as non-essentials, that doesn't mean that they're not important. We seek after them, and as we do, God shows us more about who he is in this process. And so I want to encourage you as we finish this series out together, uh, these are things that hopefully have been challenging to you. Maybe they've caused you to think in a little bit of a different way. Maybe they've just confirmed what you already believe, but hopefully in the end, they've ignited more of a passion and a dedication and a commitment to following Jesus and to believing and trusting in his word. So that being said, I'm going to pray for us as we close. I want to invite the band to come up going to lead us in one last song as we sing, but let's pray as they make their way up here. Father, I thank you so much that you are both eminent and transcendent, that you are personal. Lord, we can know you. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. You have shown us who you are through your creation. And at the same time, you are transcendent. You are other than us. And I'm thankful for that as well. I'm thankful that we are not God and that you are. And I'm thankful that there are things that you have chosen to, hit, to hide from us, uh, either because of your wisdom or because you know that we wouldn't be able to understand it completely. But by your great wisdom, Lord, you have chosen to hide those things from us, and they've become mysteries in some ways. They're a little bit veiled. But I pray that as we seek out these things together and we continue to chase after the mysteries of God, that we as a church, we as a community, we as people who are following Jesus together, would see you for who you are. That as we study your scripture, Lord, that in the end, your word would do in us what it is sent for and meant for. That is to change our hearts and that is to reveal to us who you are. And so whether we're talking about dinosaurs or whether we're talking about uh, creation or the age of the earth, we know those things will be resolved one day when we see Jesus again. Until then, we may debate, we may even argue with one another, but Lord, I pray we'd have a spirit of love and humility and grace and mercy towards one another as we do. So thank you, Lord, that the way that you work through the church is you help refine our rough edges. As iron sharpens iron, so we sharpen one another as we seek your word together. We thank you for your goodness and your design in that. We thank you for your design and creation. Even the pieces we can't fully explain do certainly proclaim the glory of God and your handiwork in this place. So we thank you, Lord God, as our creator, our sustainer, the one who gives us life, and the one who saves us and gives us new life and a hope. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name.
Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Again, great to see everybody here this morning. Thanks for coming and being here. Let me just say one thing. I, I realize I forgot to answer that question of all of that I said over the past, like, whatever long it's been. I forgot to talk about, answer that question directly about dinosaurs. Yes, dinosaurs did exist. Believe that. It's just a question of kind of when they were, depending on your perspective. And so there you go. I guess I could have just said that at the beginning and we could have gone home. Did dinosaurs exist? Yes. We wouldn't have had to have a 45-minute sermon or whatever that was. Um, so here we go. Uh, I want to remind you guys of this. We're doing something a little bit different. You know, we don't have our prayer partners available right now because of distancing requirements. But we want to remind you that we have these prayer um, cards that you can fill out as you leave. They're on the table as you leave there. And so if you have something that you would like us to pray about, we pray over these every week as a staff during our staff meetings. And, and we have a prayer team and elders who pray over these as well. And so we take these very seriously. If you have a prayer request, something that's going on in your life or a family member's life, please write down that prayer request for us. Drop it in one of those boxes before you leave the offering boxes, and we'll make sure that we take care of it from there, okay? So guys, great to see you again. Hope you all have a great week. I want to give you a heads up. Join us next week for the holders as they're going to be here. And then in two weeks, we're starting a new series on the Sermon of the Mount um, from Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to go through that series now in two weeks as we finish this one. And we're getting ready to look to the next one. So hope you guys can join us over the next couple weeks. Have a great week. We'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.